Uh, Let me pray for us, and we'll begin. Uh, Father in heaven, I thank you for another Sunday to gather together as a church family to worship you. I pray for those who are here in this room, as well as those connecting online. Lord, you please speak to us this morning. We need a word from you. We don't need just good advice or insights or anything like that. We need to hear from you. And so I pray that you would speak through your word and through the preaching this morning. Pray that you would warm our hearts to what you have to say to us. And pray that as we sing, that we would sing um, as a full expression of our faith and not just words of our mouth only, but that they would be the full intent of our hearts. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite Christmas movies growing up as a kid, I watched it every year and now I watch it with my kids, was the, is The Muppet Christmas Carol. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but in it, Michael Caine, before he became Bruce Wayne's butler, plays Ebenezer Scrooge, and Kermit the Frog is Bob Cratchit, and it, it's just a great film. If you haven't seen it, you need to. It's almost 30 years old now, but it's still as good as it ever was. But do you want to know something funny? For the vast majority of my childhood, I had no idea that it was based on a book. I I totally just thought that the Muppets people created this great story and it sort of just dropped out of thin air. It was not until my mid-teens or maybe even my 20s that I realized, oh, this is actually like based on a book. Like it's it's been around for a long time, and so I actually ended up getting the audio book of A Christmas Carol, and every couple of years I read it and uh, or listen to it, and I just listened to it this last week. And I was reminded that while The Muppets Christmas Carol is an excellent film, it doesn't quite get the punch of the book. And that's always the case, right? The movies are almost never as good as the book. That's what happens when we retell stories and we do the same thing over and over. We retell it in different ways and different times. The original story can sort of lose its punch a little bit. And Christmas can be like that too. We can do our family traditions, like watching movies, making popcorn, or whatever it is that your family does. Even the religious traditions of coming to a Christmas Eve service and things like that. And we can sometimes lose the punch of uh, the original Christmas story. And so I'm going to preach a Christmas sermon this morning. And we're going to go back to the book, and we're going to look at the Christmas story. But it's not going to feel like a Christmas sermon, uh, because what we're going to do is we're actually going to go way back to the beginning of the Bible and see what leads up to the original Christmas story. So I'm going to talk you through large, kind of the large story of the Bible. And so like I said, we'll start at the beginning in Genesis. In the very first pages of the Bible, God creates everything. The heavens and the earth, the universe as you and I know it, God creates it. And there's this perfect rhythm and balance to creation. Everything is in harmony. And God creates the first humans, Adam and Eve, sets them in the Garden of Eden, and they enjoy something that you and I have yet to experience, a life totally untouched by sin, no sickness, no sadness. They're in perfect relationship with God, with one another, and with all creation. Everything's good. But then they did the same thing that you or I would have done if we were in their shoes. They rebelled. If you know the story, Satan, in the form of a serpent, comes into the garden and he deceives Eve into disobeying God. And she takes this forbidden fruit, eats it, 
and gives it to Adam who is with her and he eats it. And then God comes walking through the garden and he calls out to Adam, where are you? For the first time in human history, people felt shame and they were hiding from God. There are still a lot of people doing that today. Well, Adam eventually confesses that he ate the fruit, but he says, it wasn't my fault. Eve gave it to me. Eve, who you gave to me, she gave it to me, so it's her fault. And so God talks to Eve and she says, well, yeah, I did it, but it's not my fault. The serpent deceived me. And so then beginning with the serpent, God doesn't even ask the serpent a question. Um, he, just, he just goes at him. And so beginning with the serpent and then with Eve and then to Adam, he pronounces a curse. So let's look at that curse. It's Genesis three fourteen through 19. It says this, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, because you've deceived Eve, you've led humanity into rebellion, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to the voice of your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food, until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. I told you it didn't feel like a Christmas sermon at first. Paradise was lost. Sin had now entered the world, and with it came a curse. And since that time, all of humanity, including you, including me, has been born into a world plagued by this curse. We experience life with death, pain, suffering, and sadness. I want to pause here and remind you that this is a true story. This actually happened. It's easy, maybe because of the familiarity or because it feels like it was so long ago to sort of feel like that was something different. But the curse from Genesis 3 still exists. It is very real, and you and I experience it on a day-to-day, a moment-to-moment basis. It still affects the world around us, and it affects our hearts inside of us. It's not just some stuffery, ivory tower theological concept. When you get into a fight with your spouse over what is the dumbest thing, that's the curse. When, when you blow up on your kids and you know you shouldn't have, that's the curse. When you have a conversation with someone and it kind of gets your blood pumping and you can't think right then what to say, but then you replay that conversation like a thousand times in your head until you figure out what was the perfect comeback, that's the curse. When someone you love gets sick and dies, when you get sick and die, That's the curse. The pandemic we're in, as well as all the others throughout history, those are part of the curse. 
This is very real. This is one of the reasons, the curse, that you feel anxious when Christmas comes around if you don't want to be around your family. That's the reason there's the hurt and the drama in those relationships. That's the curse. So now we live in this cursed world with death hanging over us, sickness in our bodies, and strain in our relationships. The Bible talks about this as captivity, that we are captives, we are prisoners, we are unable to save ourselves. It's fairly bleak, but it's not the whole story. As is the character of God, he did not leave Adam and Eve hopeless, and he did not abandon them. A fun fact about God, if you read the Bible, any time he pronounces judgment, with the exception of final judgment that is still to come, any time he pronounces judgment, there is always hope. It's either in repentance or in the future, but there is always hope for God's people. And that's the case here. So I don't know if you caught it, but let's look again at what he says to the serpent. God does not leave them without hope. So he says, uh, because you've done this, cursed are you above the livestock, all the wild animals who crawl in your belly, you'll eat the dust. But look what he says in verse 15. I will put enmity between you, between Satan, and the woman, Eve. Between your offspring... Now, that word offspring could also be seed, maybe, in your translation, or child. Between your offspring, and you need to remember that word. That's going to be a key word throughout the book of Genesis and throughout the whole Bible. Between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So, a little insider tip on reading the Bible. One of the ways that you can now read the Bible is following these two lineages, the lineage of the serpent and the lineage of the woman. And as a Bible reader, what you're now doing is you're now reading the stories, looking who's the descendant of Eve, who's the descendant of the serpent, who's on the good side, who's on the bad side. And you're looking for a male descendant of Eve to come and crush the serpent, someone to undo the curse, someone to redeem humanity. Now, most of you are in church. You know the answer. You know who I'm already talking about. But don't jump there yet. Because if you go straight from Genesis 3 to the answer, you're going to miss so much of the buildup and therefore so much of the significance of the actual answer. And so let's read. Let's just do a little project. Let's read and think through the book of Genesis and the rest of the Bible as if we don't know the answer. Because if that's the case, then what you're now doing is you're looking for a male descendant of Eve. Let's call him the one. And what's the next story in the Bible? Two sons are born to Eve, Cain and Abel. So if you're a Bible reader, you're like, all right, we got, we got two candidates here. And you learn that Abel's sacrifices to God are acceptable. Cain's are not. So you're thinking, ah, sweet, Abel, he's going to be our guy. Out of jealousy, though, Cain kills Abel. So your candidate is dead and his brother is a murderer. So it's not going to be Cain or Abel. You go to Genesis 5, the next story, and it is a long genealogy where centuries go by and people just die and die and die, as is, I mean, that's just what we do. We die. And so they're dying. And as that's happening, sin just continues to multiply and blossom 
all over the world until it gets to the point in Genesis 6 where it says that God was sorry that he had made mankind. That's a powerful statement. But there's one man who found favor in the eyes of God. Noah. So as a Bible reader, you're thinking, maybe Noah. And in fact, God calls Noah to build this ark, and those who are on the ark with him, his family and the animals, they're going to survive this catastrophic flood that will kill all life on earth. It's intense judgment. But if you're looking for the seed of Eve, you're thinking Noah. I mean, this is the guy that God has chosen to restart creation with. But after the flood subsides and Noah gets out, he gets blackout, wasted, drunk, and passes out naked in his tent. It's not going to be Noah. It's not going to be his sons. But a few chapters later, we meet a man named Abram, who is renamed Abraham. Now, for various reasons, Abraham is not going to be the one, but God makes a promise to him that theologians now call the Abrahamic covenant. And he says that you're going to have a son. Now, remember, Abraham and his wife were barren. They, they were too old, and they weren't able to have kids. But God said, you're going to have a son, and it is through your offspring, through your seed, same word, that I will bless the whole world. Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. And the whole world will be blessed through your offspring. And so we know it's not just a descendant of Eve, which could be anybody in the world at this point. It's specifically going to be a son of Abraham. Well, Abraham and his wife have their miracle baby. His name is Isaac. He is the child of promise. And for various reasons, Isaac is not going to be the one either. But he receives the same promise, the same blessing that came to Abraham. So the promises and the blessings of the covenant go to Isaac. And so as a Bible reader, you're following this line. You follow Isaac's line. He has two sons, Jacob and Esau. So you think it's going to be one of these two. For various reasons that you can read in Genesis, it's not Jacob or Esau. But surprisingly, Jacob, even though he is A, the younger brother, and B, a lying thief, he receives the blessings and the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. And so that is why the Bible kind of stops talking about Esau so much and you follow the line of Jacob. You're still looking for the seed of Eve. Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. It becomes clear that none of them, by the time we get to the end of Genesis, none of them are going to be the one. You end the book of Genesis still looking. But before it ends, at the very end, Jacob is blessing his sons and he kind of refines this promise a little bit more. So this is in Genesis 49 verse 10. This is what Jacob says to his son Judah. And this is just a small portion to it of what he says. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. Now there's other things he says to Judah, but it becomes clear here that it won't just be a descendant of Abraham. This person will clearly come from the tribe of Judah. And he will be a ruler of some some sort. He's got a scepter. He's got a ruler's staff. And so now you're looking for a ruler from Judah to save. But the book of Genesis closes. You don't know who it is yet. Well, the book of Exodus opens, and you are introduced to a man named Moses. 
Now Moses is a great guy. Over the next four books of the Bible, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Moses famously leads God's people out of Egypt, out of slavery and oppression, through the wilderness. Miracle after miracle after miracle is mediated through Moses. And he becomes the one through whom the commands of God come to his people, through whom the covenant called the Mosaic Covenant. These theologians are great with their titles, right? Abrahamic Covenant, Mosaic Covenant. Anyway, so... The Mosaic Covenant comes through him. He is a prophet. He is a leader. He is a ruler. He's a, he's, he looks like he's the one. But he doesn't obey God completely. And he's not from the tribe of Judah. So the coming one will be kind of like Moses, but better. Well, after those books, you come into Joshua and Judges. And it becomes clear that Joshua is not going to be the one. And the book of Judges just introduces us to leader after leader after leader who sins and sins and sins. They lead God's people into idolatry. They murder. They have no idea what they're doing. It becomes very clear as you read the book of Judges, they don't know who Yahweh is. And they are just as depraved and controlled by the curse as you and me. It's a mess. Eventually, though, Israel establishes a monarchy. And the first king to be installed is a man named Saul. And Saul, at first, looks great. He's tall, he's strong, he's handsome. He defeats God's enemies. He, he, he looks like he's the one. But you got two problems with Saul. First, you realize he's not from the tribe of Benjamin, so not a total fit there. But more importantly, he, like Adam and Eve, disobeys several direct commands of God. So much so that God removes him from the throne. He's, you're done. And he puts in his place a shepherd boy, someone you wouldn't expect, David. Now I want to stop and camp on David for a minute because more than anyone else that we've seen, David has the best shot at being the one. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's described as a man after God's own heart. He is passionate in his own personal relationship with God, and he's passionate about leading Israel into worship of Yahweh. He is strong. He's able to defeat some long-standing enemies of Israel who had before then not yet been defeated or driven out. And so he looks like he can defeat God's enemies. He's righteous. He loves the Lord. He wants to lead other people in that same way. But if you know the stories, David is not the one. Though he's a king and though he's a good king, he still has some serious problems. He uses his power as the king to take sexual advantage of a young married woman. And then he uses the power of that same office of king to conspire her husband's death so that he could cover his tracks. David is not the one. But... Beforehand, before that happens, God made a promise to David called, ready for it, the Davidic covenant, okay? So this is in 2 Samuel 7. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Now, he's not talking about a house like, you know, with windows and a door and a chimney and all that. He's talking about a lineage. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up 
your, you see that word? Offspring or seed. Your ears should perk. You have just attached Eve, Abraham, Judah, now David. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. You who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There's a few other things in there, but that's what I wanted to camp on is that it becomes clear that even though it's not going to be David, it will be a king in David's line. And this king's going to have apparently an eternal kingdom. I will establish his kingdom forever. While David's son Solomon succeeds him as king. Solomon makes a smart move and asks for wisdom instead of anything else, and he becomes the wisest man on the planet in his day. And so he rules with wisdom and with justice. He builds a temple for Yahweh, and at first you're thinking, all right, Solomon looks like he could be the one. He seems to fit the bill here. But Solomon has a weakness for women, and so he runs after literally hundreds of women, ungodly women, who lead him and by extension Israel into idolatry. And so though he built the temple, he also built altars to false gods. He led Israel in sin. And so it's not going to be Solomon. And from here, the kingdom of Israel breaks into two, and you've got a king in the north and a king in the south. And if you read the book of Kings, it is just a horrible downward spiral the whole time. With very few exceptions, each king seems to be worse than the one before him. Sin is again just multiplying, just blossoming. It is destroying families. People are murdered, raped, burned. The truth is ignored. The few people who do worship Yahweh, who do want to follow him, are by far the minority. All the while, God is sending his prophets, rebuking the people for forsaking him, calling them to repentance, warning of future judgment that is to come, but always reminding them of hope in either repentance or the future. And we don't have nearly enough time to look at all the prophecies that are made about this coming one. But here are just a few. Let me highlight them. In Isaiah 9, it says that this person, this coming one, will hang out near the Sea of Galilee. That he'll bless the Gentiles. That he'll be a light to people who are sitting in darkness. Micah 5 says not only will he be from the tribe of Judah, not only from the line of David, but he will specifically be from the town of Bethlehem, the city of David. And he will bring peace to his people. Ezekiel 34 says that he'll be a shepherd. He will treat God's people with tenderness and care and compassion. Isaiah 7 says that he will be born of a virgin. And there's many others, but we see that he's going to be a son of Eve, descended from Abraham, from the tribe of Judah, a king in the line of David, born of a virgin from Bethlehem. In addition, he's going to be without sin. He will defeat death. He will be resurrected. Psalm 16, you will not abandon me to the grave. He will overcome the curse. He will set the captives free. He will bring physical and spiritual healing to God's people. He will be God himself, Emmanuel, walking among his people. 
He will stamp out evil and injustice. He will care for the orphan and the widow, people from all over the world, every tribe, tongue, and nation from the ends of the earth will flock to him as their chosen king, as their ruler. They will forsake their gods. They will come to this one. This coming king will literally fix everything that is wrong in the world and everything that is wrong in us. By and large, though, these prophets were totally ignored. And sin continues to wreak havoc. The curse continues to reign. And so the Bible, like I said, talks about us being captives. And so God, what he does is they have descended so far into sin is that he sends his people not only into metaphorical captivity, but physical captivity as exiles into Babylon and Assyria. They lose their land, they lose their identity, they lose their geography. But before the end of the Old Testament, they come back from captivity. But even though they're back from physical captivity through some of the other prophets, it becomes very clear they are still in captivity. The curse is still in power. And so do you know what finally happens? Nothing. For 400 years, nothing happens. Generations go by and they, they just wait. And as far as we know, no new scripture was written. Prophets weren't sent. Just life just goes on. And God's people sit there just waiting, waiting. Until finally, something incredible happens. Luke one twenty six, In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Galilee. To a virgin, Isaiah 7, to a virgin. Pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. 2 Samuel 7, David. Galilee, virgin, David, your ears should perk. Okay? If you've been paying attention, then you should go, oh, I think this, this might be someone important. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. That phrase sound familiar at all? Sounds a lot like Noah to me. You have found favor with God. Same phrase. You will be with child and give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. This is it. The promised one is here. And I know you knew the answer, but you have to think about it. It wasn't Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. It wasn't Cain, Abel, or Noah. It wasn't Moses, Joshua, or any of the judges. It wasn't Saul, David, Solomon, or any of the kings that followed him. You're following these lines, and it is failure after failure after failure, and you get exhausted just waiting. When will this one come. And he has finally come. 
Jesus is the one that we were waiting for the whole time. He is the child of Eve who would crush Satan. He is the one who would reverse the curse. He is the one who came to set us free. He is the king of kings, the defeater of death, the prince of peace, the destroyer of Satan. We celebrate Christmas because when Jesus was born, it's not just a story that dropped out of thin air with no backstory. This is part of the much larger story of God setting his people free. It's not even necessarily a story about a stable or wise men or stars. That is part of the larger picture. God himself became a man to save us. The infinite creator clothed himself with finite flesh, and he led us out of darkness. Christmas is about the coming of the king of ages. We were under a curse. We were hopeless to save ourselves, but God himself comes in the man, Jesus Christ. He redeems us from the curse. He did what none of us could do. He lived a sinless life. He resisted the intense temptations of the world and of Satan, temptations that you or I have never yet experienced. He lived a sinless life. He was crucified on a cross. He was resurrected three days later. He sealed his victory over death and he promised that he's coming back. Christmas commemorates the birth of Jesus, but it ought to remind us of the full work of Jesus on our behalf. So now though, the curse is still here. You've still had people die in your life. You've gotten sick. We're in a pandemic. Why isn't it gone? If Jesus came, you see, we find ourselves living between two Christmases. The first Christmas, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was born, and the next one, whenever he comes back. Could be this afternoon, could be tomorrow, could be 1,000 years from now. We don't know. It does seem like it's getting closer, but (laughs) we just don't know. We don't know when that will be. And so we find ourselves doing what God's people have done from the beginning, waiting. We find ourselves waiting. Jesus has begun the work of new creation. And we are waiting, just like God's people had waited for centuries. We are waiting for him to come back and finish the job. And we know that he will. And so my goal for you is that as we celebrate Christmas is that you would take some time to reflect on the work of Christ in coming to set you free and that you would also take some time to reflect and look forward to with anticipation his return. And Christmas can be a time for us of holy meditation and holy reflection worshiping and glorifying Jesus for the great work that he has done, for coming to set us free and pleading for him to come back. May Christmas elicit from us praise, joy, and love for one another grounded in the gospel, and may it be a time where we look forward to him coming again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for the Christmas story and all that it means. I pray that as we um, rehearse 
the trip to Bethlehem, the star, the wise men, the shepherds, the angels coming, all of those things, may it remind us just of how good and glorious you are. May it remind us of how much you love us and of your finished work in setting us free. I thank you that we can, in the present, experience peace, experience some relief from the curse, but we do look forward to the day when you will bring full consummation, full healing. We look forward to that day, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.